This week's TribCast is sponsored by Educate Texas. Educate Texas stimulates creative solutions to key educational challenges throughout the state. Learn more at edtx.org. And the St. David's Foundation. Depression, anxiety, and mental health disorders affect at least one in eight pregnant and postpartum women nationally. But 60% of these women never receive a clinical diagnosis, and half of those diagnosed do not receive treatment. Learn how untreated maternal mental health conditions cost Texas over $2 billion and what we can do about it at stdavidsfoundation.org. Hello and welcome to the Texas Tribune TribCast for January 7th, 2022. Happy New Year to everyone. This is our first TribCast of the new year. Um, and it's looking a lot like the old year with conversations uh, today about Omicron virus and the, the January 6th uh, insurrection, among other things. This week, I am joined by Health and Human Services reporter Karen Brooks Harper. Hello. Hello, and politics reporter Patrick Svitek. Hello there. Hi, and, and I'm Matthew Watkins, managing editor of News and Politics, which I don't think I said, in, in case you don't know. But uh, thank you to both of you all for joining us. Uh, I want to start off with conversation about Omicron. Since mm -hmm. we last talked, as expected, the cases in Texas have surged to basically unprecedented levels. The positivity rate in the state, kind of the portion of tests that are taken that come back positive, has skyrocketed to basically unheard of levels, 35% uh, the last couple of days here in Texas, a, a pretty stunningly high number considering what we had seen in the past and what we had kind of identified as the, the red flag number in the past being around 10%. We're now more than triple that. But the good news, at least so far, is that hospitalizations are still you know, well below their uh, earlier in the pandemic peaks. But Karen, I guess the question we all have is, is it going to stay that way? Or is, are we just seeing kind of the looming disaster build back up? Well, you know, I, um, I, I, as usual lately, I'm the bearer of some grim news on that front. Um, but, uh, you know, we, you, you never know how quickly the, this could drop because it's such a, it's such a, a unique variant, right? It's so, so highly contagious. Um, but in South Africa, where we first saw it overtake Delta, uh, it's already past the peak. So um, what the, the, the scientific community and the forecasters um, believe that given their current knowledge of, om of the Omicrons, you know, apparently milder symptoms, but apparently much more contagious nature, um, that we could still see hospitalizations go uh, past what they were even last January, which our peak was still past, you know, 14,000 you know, Texans in the hospital on, in, you know, in mid-January of 2021, we still haven't gotten past that. Um, you know, we're, we're still at, you know, 80, you know, 8,800 Texans in the hospital. That's, that's just over half of what we were at our last peak, but the forecasters say we could hit it by mid-January still because Omicron is so, uh, is so infectious. So the deaths, we don't know, you know, the death, it doesn't seem to be killing people at a faster rate, according to the science. Um, children's hospitals are already being uh, already seeing record highs, the highest of the pandemic. Um, but we're still talking 350 kids total in Texas with in hospital with COVID, just to kind of keep a perspective on that number. Um, so, you know, 
But the good news is that there are signs that the peak could be, you know, we could be past the peak in a few weeks, but the bad news is that it doesn't look like we're at it yet. Is, is that mm -hmm. Sure, and you know, of course, the, it often takes time, you know, between someone being infected to, you know, reaching the point where they need to go to the hospital. And of course, deaths is an even bigger lagging number. I mean, right. the good news, of course, is as you mentioned, the the evidence has continued to mount that Omicron is not as serious of a strand as as past uh, variants, particularly Delta. But it's just the sheer number, right? Like if a smaller percentage of people are getting seriously sick who catch it that's great except for the fact that the number of people catching it is kind of almost sure. astounding at this point yeah yeah if you've got you know half the people going to the icu but triple the number of people getting infected then you're still gonna have you know whatever smart person would come up with for the for the number and there you know you still have a good you know 50 percent increase in the number of of uh you know, ICUs just because of the sheer numbers. So that's what everybody is worried about. It, it, it's the uh, it's the fact that this this variant has in the literally exactly one month since it was you know as of yesterday since it was first identified in Texas on December sixth, I think. Um, it's become the it's it, it's ninety percent of the new and active cases, and it's completely overtaken Delta. And if you recall, Delta started showing up in Texas in maybe like March. And then it didn't really overtake and become dominant. People weren't really blaming it for the wave until like July. And mm -hmm. it's taken Omicron less than a month to overtake Delta, um, which is just staggeringly fast. It's as contagious as measles and the common cold. Um, so it's, you know, the bright side again, being because so many people will be infected um, and because vaccines and boosters still keep you out of the hospital and keep you alive during this, which is the point of them. Um, they do protect you against Omicron. Um, you know, the number of people with natural immunity on the other side of this could be what pushes us into sort of a endemic status on the, on, on the uh, with the virus, something that we can live with as a society, um, which people are thinking could happen, you know, later this year, you know. Yeah, yeah. Year. I'm looking at our... Uh our data tracker right now the, that we update daily and, and the just total cases number is just, the graph is just astounding. I mean, we basically had to re adjust our, our graph to make a taller Y axis. We were talking about yeah. the seven day averages of cases, you know, never surpassing 20,000 a day up until now and and the the, the seven-day average on january 6th was thirty-nine thousand. so we're you know we're basically seeing double the number of reports reported cases than we had ever seen before yeah and you know there's a lot of testing going on right now which of course increases the numbers yep. you know famously tried to use in his favor you know i believe um early in the pandemic but the more you know more people getting tested the more you're going to catch right you're not you're but you're also not catching you know, um, at home tests um, and the positivity rate is, is a, so the number is probably inflated of people who have it mm -hmm. because not everybody's reporting it if they, if they catch it at home, you know, if they, if they test at home, right? Or if they don't test at all. However, the positivity rate is, is interesting um, because it's 35%, right? But also it is, it is, it could be um, interpreted, you know, a little bit in either direction only because the people who are getting tested now are going to be the ones that are more likely to have it if they have symptoms or you know if they have reason to believe they have it um if nothing else because of the scarcity of tests 
So the number of cases and the positivity rate fluctuate a little bit depending on circumstances, but there's absolutely no question at all that in every county that I'm looking at in Texas, the number's going up. And that's, mm -hmm. that's, that's an, even if it's not precise, it's, it's definitely an alarming indicator. What are you hearing from the hospitals these days? They are, um, you know, there's, <laughs> staffing issues are probably as bad as, or definitely as bad as they've ever been. Um, there's staff getting, you know, being called out sick because of their, uh, not just them getting infected, but because of their family members or household uh, members getting infected. They have to stay home and quarantine because of them. Um, you know, there's been, you know, delays in services, uh, emergency services. There's been uh, labor and delivery units that have had to limit their hours or shut down because their staff has been called away to do other things or because they've left entirely um, over the last several months out of burnout. Everything just seems to be kind of coming to a head uh, in terms of the staffing crisis in the hospitals. And they're still, you know, limping through. I mean, they kind of have had several drills on this. It's just not getting any easier for them, you know. Um, so, and, and one of the interesting things right now that's happening with them is that the testing situation has created an additional wave of people showing up at hospitals or calling 911 to get tested. Um, the UC Austin Public Health and the city of Austin asking people, begging people in like daily emails, don't call 911 if you have to, if you, if you can't need a test, just wait, you know. Patrick, what are we seeing from the state government, our, our, our governor on this? It's, it seems as though, you know, he's definitely not out there giving weekly press conferences like he, he did at the beginning of this pandemic, but it seems to have gained a little bit more of his attention in the past week or so, or really last couple weeks, I guess. Uh, just a little bit more. Um, I mean, he's still holding firm on, you know, uh, not doing any further or any new statewide restrictions and, and still restricting local officials from doing things like mask and vaccine mandates. Uh, we did see him finally more or less acknowledge this uh, via a news release in which he said he was asking the Biden administration to provide more federally supported testing sites for several counties, some of the, the more populous counties in Texas. Um, and he also said that they were dispatching uh, medical teams to, I think, three um, three different areas or a few different areas. And so, um, you know, that was notable just because that that seemed to acknowledge that we are in a, a place where resources are being stressed. Sure, sure. And, you know, one thing that I, I pointed out on Twitter, he also put out kind of a, had a meeting with the state leaders who are responding to this, you know, uh, dishes, the Department of State Health Services, the um, Texas Department of Emergency Management. Uh, you know, we, of course, have not seen him take much action at all in terms of promoting vaccines, um, although they did talk about the importance of that there. I mean, that is, you know, one thing that we continue to see is that the, that the getting boosted, getting your vaccine keeps you safe, uh, maybe not from catching the virus, as many people who are vaccinated are, are doing that, but at least from getting the worst of the virus, getting sent to the hospital and things like that. Karen, I want to ask you just one last thing before we move on here. Um, so what are you hearing about when the end of this peak might be? Is it, I mean, is it too soon to tell? Are there are there predictions out there? Uh, you know, the end of January is the, you know, the kind of fingers crossed if we, you know, keep up, you know, kind of keep up or get better, you know, about what we're doing, hand washing, masking, social distancing, all the things we all know how to do already. Um but, but the, you know, the, the, the predictions or I should say forecast, which is a bit softer and that's the word they like me to use, they get <laughs> <laughs> predictions, but, 
um, you know, end of January, maybe we'll start to get onto the other side of this variant and, uh, or the peak anyway, like South Africa uh, and some of the other places have, have started to see that. that um, but, you know, then what's after that? I mean, what's the next variant? You know, so, so many people have it, you know, have gotten it. Um, and so many people in the world are still unvaccinated. And we don't, and I can bring up South Africa, but we, you know, we don't have any, that's just where it was first I, I publicly identified um, and reported, publicly reported, you know. And so um, we don't know where the next one's going to pop up or what it's going to look like. Um, is it going to be milder? Is it going to be more contagious? Is there going to be another variant that can overtake Omicron? Because if there is, then that is a pretty contagious one. And, and so we have to be mindful of what's on the other side of this one, because this won't be the last one. Uh, and that's something that it's always helpful to remember when you're in the throes of the current surge that on the other side of the surge, or just there might be, this might be another surge. So, you know, you just don't know. I think in some places in Texas, we're at number five, fifth wave now. Yeah, I remember when we, you know, back in the day, we were talking about whether there'd be a second wave. And, and yeah. here we are. Yep. Here we are. Okay, let's take a, a, a break to hear from our sponsors. Lone Star College. Lone Star College has strategic relationships with industry leaders to provide robust workforce staffing. Find out more at lonestar.edu. And Episcopal Health Foundation. From skipping medical care to financial hardship, Episcopal Health Foundation's new survey shows how COVID-19 is affecting Texans in many different ways. Find out more at episcopalhealth.org. Okay, so Thursday marked the anniversary of the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol when Trump supporters stormed Congress and temporarily blocked the certification of Joe Biden's victory as president. There were 17 Texas Republicans who voted against certification that day, and, and most spent yesterday, you know, not really acknowledging what happened um, on that event. Uh, we, we didn't really see any Republicans join in the remembrances in the, the, the U.S. House, and and, and when we, the Tribune, reached out to Texas uh, members about, you know, basically asking the simple question of whether they view Biden, Biden's win as legitimate one year later, uh, they, none of them really answered our questions. Um, but there was one lawmaker in particular who had a particularly active and challenging day on this anniversary, um, and in large part for, you know, saying some critical things about the, the uh the insurrection. Patrick, can you tell us a little bit about the controversy among conservatives that Ted Cruz found himself in yesterday? Yeah, he got backlash from someone in his party because at a, a recent congressional proceeding, uh, he labeled January 6th as a, quote, violent terrorist attack, uh, which he has used previously, including in his ori original statement uh, on that the events of that day, which I think was put out the day after on January 7th. So this is not necessarily a new thing for him, but I, I, you know, this particular clip where he used it again recently got a lot of attention, including from uh, the Vox News host, Tucker Carlson, who was very critical of Cruz for using uh, that label for January 6th. Um, and in, you know, a pretty revealing sign of where the power in the party is right now, Cruz, uh, you know, scrambled uh, to get on Tucker Carlson's show um, the, the night after this uproar uh, on the night of January 6th and basically uh, apologized for using that term and tried to separate, um, you know, tried to make clear that he was not referring to everyone who was there that day uh, as violent terrorists, but only those um, who, uh, you know, assaulted police officers. <laughs> and even then, Tucker Carlson didn't necessarily uh, accept 
that the, those who assaulted police officers could be labeled as terrorists on January 6th, which again, just goes to show where the, the you know, in this post-Trump party, post-Trump presidency party, um, you know, I think uh, where the centers of gravity are and how they are, you know, at least in some corners, the corners where Tucker Carlson is, um, is so influential, um, you know, that day is still being downplayed um, and is, is being viewed as an over-exaggeration by Democrats in the media. Yeah, I mean, it was a pretty amazing video. I watched it last night. I watched it again this morning, uh, right before we came on and, and talked to this. I mean, Carlson was really going after Cruz for these comments and, and, you know, a pretty compelling manner. And, you know, one thing that struck me about it was that Carlson kind of in his lead up to the interview said that, you know, he criticized him on that night, I guess the night of January 5th, 2022, and he said that essentially right after the show, he got a text message from Ted Cruz right. asking to come on. And, you know, the the kind of quickness, the whiplash effect of that um, was just extremely striking to me. And then just kind of the way that Carlson went after him. I mean, I think you put it uh, very, very well. It, it, it really shows how much of an influence, you know, this particular TV uh, pundit uh, has on 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 the voters and 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 how basically how basically Cruz feels you know such pressure when when he's being criticized on that platform right and i think it, there was a new york times reporter maybe maggie haberman who, who commented last night you know watching that clip of tucker carlson and ted cruz you have to wonder i mean one of those guys ted cruz has said he's interested in running for president again but you have to think of those two guys looking at them right now who is who's more likely to be a republican presidential viable republican presidential candidate in 2024 <laughs> at this point um which you know again just shows um i think what we're talking about here with the where the center of, of influence is in the party right now um and it, i think it was very revealing you know whether you think what it, regardless of what you think of ted cruz whether he's um, you know, courageous conservative or soulless, you know, coward. Um, he's someone who's always uh, had his finger, I think, on the pulse of where his party will be um, a couple months from now. Or he's always trying to look around the corner for his party. And I think where his party's of where his party's going. And sometimes he's too cute by half, but he certainly is someone um, I think who understands when he's misstepped within the current party paradigm. And he uh, clearly sensed that with this. Yeah, you know, it's funny, it, was, it wasn't that long ago when he was speaking pretty confidently about how he views his standing in a potential, you know, 2024 primary, I think, talking about how he finished second last time, and that kind of caused him to be, you know, in the, the, the kind of a front rider status in the future. Of course, all of this depends on whether or not you know, President Trump decides to run again as well. Of course, yeah. You know, speaking of uh, insurrection politics, you also had a very interesting story on the situation with Van Taylor, which we've touched on a little bit in, in, in on this podcast before. But can you tell us a little bit about the, the situation he finds himself in uh, related to the, the January 6th primary? Or, uh, excuse me, the March 2nd primary related yeah. to January 6th? <laughs> Um, so Van Taylor is a sophomore congressman from suburban Dallas, uh, based in Collin County. And he was one of two Texas Republicans who, in the wake of the uh, events of January 6th, voted for a bipartisan independent commission to investigate it. 
Um, that commission, if you recall, actually never became law. It was it died in the Senate, more or less. And so it never happened. But nonetheless, Nancy Pelosi, later the Democratic House Speaker, later created a select committee. And that's the committee that's currently um, investigating uh, January 6th. Van Taylor spoke out and opposed that committee, but he's still getting heat from his right in his primary for voting for that commission that never saw the light of day. Um, and, you know, his primary challengers include um, the former county judge of, Col of, of Collin County, Keith Self, uh, a businesswoman from, Dal from the Dallas area named Suzanne Harp, who uh, coincidentally is the chief of staff to Congressman Madison Cawthorn, kind of rising star, pro-Trump Republican from North Carolina. And um, he's just getting heat for that commission vote. And um, he's been taking it seriously, um, you know, fundraising seriously, getting endorsements from top conservatives in the state, including from Ted Cruz, um, who, as we just discussed, had his own role in, in January 6th. Um, you know, but it, it, it's a race that I think demonstrates how a year later, um, you know, to at least some in the Republican Party, it's an article of faith, this idea that January 6th was overblown by Democrats in the media uh, wasn't as dangerous as they portrayed it to be, wasn't worthy of a congressional inquiry, more or less, and that this is all just an effort by Democrats in Congress to harass Republicans and try to tarnish Trump's legacy. Um, I, I think that that's, you know, you talk to Van Taylor's challengers and they would agree with all that. Yep. Yeah. All right. So I want to move on just very quickly. Uh, we also, you had a story on our site uh, last night about Greg Abbott kind of officially launching his, his reelection campaign this weekend. Tell us a little bit about what we can expect from this kind of stretch run to the, the, the March 2nd primary from Abbott. Yeah, so he's doing a few things to rev up his, his reelection campaign. As we said, he's giving a speech in McAllen on Saturday where he's officially launching his reelection campaign. We all know he's running again, but he's going to give a speech, uh, not only laying out his vision for another term, but also talking about his goal, which he's been kind of hinting at for a while now to, to win a majority of the Hispanic vote uh, in November. Um, you know, in his past two campaigns, he got 40 something percent of the Hispanic votes. So it's a goal that is, um, you know, within reach, uh, not super unrealistic for him. Um, so he's going to be talking about those things in McAllen. Um, and then on Monday, his campaign is going to be launching a statewide uh, media buy, including TV ads all the way through the primary day. Um, they've already booked over $1.3 million in airtime through just January. Um, so it's a, it's a real TV buy, not just, uh, you know, not just for us to write about. Um, and then also he's uh, going to be doing 60 campaign events um, between now and the primary day. And so um, really ramping up his reelect. He obviously has some primary challengers he has to get through before he can have a likely general election battle with uh, Democrat Beto O'Rourke. Um, his campaign continues to insist that they're not worried about his primary uh, and that all this activity is geared toward juicing and in increasing primary turnout because the, they want to increase general election turnout. And the best way to do that um, is to increase primary turnout. And so it's going to be um, a lot of Abbott activity, um, you know, in the coming weeks, I think. 60 counties in 53 days sounds uh, downright O'Rourkean in the, uh, yeah. the, the kind of traveling. The <laughs> yeah, state. to be clear, they say 60 campaign events in, in less oh, okay. than 60 days. I, I don't know if he's going to hit, I doubt he's going to hit 60 uh, distinct counties. Um, gotcha. And also too, I mean, we'll see what, what form these campaign events take on. 
Um, you know, not all of them are, are going to be, I highly doubt uh, many of them even are going to be, you know, open to the public town halls or something like that. Uh, but they're all going to be hosted by his campaign. Uh, I assume he's going to be giving stump speeches, rolling out individual endorsements, talking about individual issues. Uh, so we'll see how those events actually play out. Uh, but no doubt he's really ratcheting up his uh, campaign profile in these next, uh, you know, several weeks. All right. And as, as he's ratcheting that up, we will be ratcheting up a uh, video series coming from you on on the campaign in 2022. Give us a little preview of that and what we can expect. Yeah, so we wanted to hit the campaign trail and, and chronicle this uh, election cycle in, in a really colorful way and, and take people inside uh different campaign events, um, you know, especially those that are a little bit off the, the beaten path and not just in Dallas, San Antonio, Austin and Houston. And so for this first episode, we focused on the governor's race and we followed Beto O'Rourke and, and Greg Abbott on the campaign trail in November and December, um, and particularly took a look at their efforts in, in South Texas, um, which is only becoming more of a battleground. Obviously, Abbott is choosing McAllen and his, his campaign's uh, Hispanic Leadership Summit there this weekend to, to launch his uh, re-election formally there. And so I think that, um, you know, some of the things that we discussed in this first episode, you'll see uh, are only becoming uh, more relevant in the coming days in this race. Very good. All right. Well, thank you, Patrick. Thank you, Karen. Thank you to our producer, Justin. And thank you to our sponsors, Educate Texas, the St. David's Foundation, Lone Star College, and the Episcopal Health Foundation. We'll talk to you all next week.